EDM stars are household names in this day and age, selling out enormous venues and gathering legions of fans. Whole festivals center around the genre. Skrillex, Tiesto, Avicii, Deadmau5, and many more have made huge careers for themselves. Yet for many years, if you knew who a DJ was, they probably came from the hip-hop world. Grandmaster Flash, Money Mark, DJ Quick, Jazzy Jeff. Then in the mid-90s, dance DJs and producers went from clubs and parties to superstar. These performers started writing their own beats and making albums of original music. The album soon translated to major sales and a change in popular sound. A lot of these were European artists like the Chemical Brothers, The Prodigy, Underworld, and Fatboy Slim. Moby also made a big splash later in the decade as part of the New York dance scene. Perhaps the most talented and certainly mysterious of all these groups was Daft Punk. Made up of two French androids, and I'm going to botch these names, Guy Manuel de Omenim Cristo and Thomas Bangalter, the group took their sound from house, disco, electronica, indie rock, and more. Today on Hidden Jukebox, we will discuss what made these robots so popular, how they gained the respect of musicians from many genres, and how their hit single Around the World changed the shape of music. And today we have a special guest, the man, the myth, the legend, Marco <laughs> Collins. Hey, how are you, man? Good. Uh, the person who probably needs no introduction for our listeners. I mean, we could have just dove in and pretended like there wasn't a third person here and seen what happens. <laughs> <laughs> See if anybody calls you on it. Yep. That's funny. Um, Marco, thanks so, so much for being on our show. Yeah, this is cool, man. I, we're in your kitchen. We are in my kitchen, I for love sure. It. I it's, love it. It's the nicest studio in Seattle, actually. Um, I mean, okay. I've listened to your food podcast for so long, I've been a fan of that. So to be in the actual room is, I think, awesome, what's, man. What's that, what's that show called? <laughs> you know, I, I kind of get it mixed up with a couple other shows. Uh, yeah. um, so to put you on the spot to start out, Marco. Okay, let's um, do it. I, I saw you at a show a couple months ago, and I asked you to be on the podcast, Yeah, and you said, yeah, I'd love to be on your podcast, but I really don't want to talk about Nirvana, and I said, I would never do that to you, and I said, how about Daft Punk? And you lit up, and I don't know if you remember what you said to me, but I think what you said was, I low-key stalked those guys for a little I while. I did. I did. So I want to start out hearing that story. Me too. Okay, well, so I became a huge fan, you know, I... I was working in radio in the 90s. I won't go back that far because I think we're going to touch on it later. But um, I just thought what they were doing was so unique and so different and so um, contrary to everything that was going on. I mean, at that point, by the late 90s, we were in third tier grunge bands. Sure. And I just, you know, although a lot of those third tier grunge bands are friends of mine <laughs> i just couldn't stand where music was at at that time so i was going to london on a somewhat regular basis to go record shopping with a girlfriend of mine um and we went to parties and we met folks from record labels and we went to dinners and connected with people because i felt like what was starting to come up over there was going to make a big difference over here and i sure. think to a certain degree, I always liked pop music. I always liked house music and dance music. But I read Enemy Magazine, uh, which is New Musical yep. Express. And it just showed me that these bands over there that were electronic artists were playing outside in front of 80,000 people at these festivals and headlining. And people are going nuts. And I'm like, huh, 
Looks like a Nirvana show outside. It looks like a Soundgarden show. It looks like a Mudhoney show. They're crowd surfing, you know, and I was like, huh, maybe this is the move. So when I discovered Daft Punk, I think what really, you know, so the album didn't come out, the debut record didn't come out until 97, but Defunk, the first single from the band came out in 95. So I got a hold of that track and started peppering it in to my show. I was starting to sort of ramp up and trying to fuse grunge with artists like Josh Wink and um, The Grid and some of these artists that were coming up. And this is before Fat Boy. This is before the Chemical Brothers um, and the Prodigy and Underworld and whatnot. And, um, and I remember playing that song and I don't know what it was about it. I think it was that it was so bizarre and so different it was going to challenge people, but it still was filled with enough emotion to connect. Right. So, what, yeah, what kind of feedback did you get from listeners? Uh, so, it was 50 yeah. 50. Let me just tell you about this. <laughs> okay. So, <laughs> yeah, it was 50 50. People either called me up and were like, Can we swear on this? Yes, oh, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> what the fuck are you playing right now? Or people were like, Huh, this is interesting. And it was kids like, the modest mouse kids like i don't know if you've ever seen their documentary but they're all in the garage at one point or in the den after practicing and and it's either defunct or around the world is playing in the background and they're all looking at each other going what is this this is daft punk yep really like all of them are trying to figure out what the fuck i'm playing was the end owned by intercom at that point yeah, in the late 90s, it was Intercom. And, so I went through three owners. And how did they feel about you playing this stuff? I had a lot of freedom at that point, dude. That's, we mm-hmm. had broken. So when I started at that radio station, we picked our own music. A corporation didn't pick our music. We went into a music meeting, me and my boss, and we sat down and listened to the records. Um, and I remember in the early days... You know, me and my boss got in fights all the time and I would storm out of music meetings like the college radio diva that I was. The guy that thought he had so much cred that, you know, I should be able to get this seven inch single played in regular fucking rotation. Right. So we got in a lot of fights. But then when my boss started trusting my ears and we started working together, utilizing his skills, working in radio and sort of my skills to be able to hear up and coming stuff he started taking risks on letting me pop these records in once beck broke they were like they gave me all the rope in the world yeah because when when we started playing beck he didn't have a record deal he put out like five thousand of these little 12 inches called loser and a buddy of mine sent it to me from la and i was playing it on vinyl i didn't even transfer it into a cart system which is sort of the uh, system radio stations will use at that time. There were no hard drives at that time. I remember Uh, carts. Yeah, yeah, (laughs) carts. Oh, my God. Have you worked in radio? Um, I I worked at my college radio station. I was going to say, you have a voice, though. Oh, thank you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I've worked in podcasting for a long time because I know, because you love my food podcast. Yes, I just love that (laughs) food We both have faces for radio. That's for God. I mean, all three of us have faces (laughs) for radio. But, yes, I worked in college radio, like, uh, early early to mid-90s. Okay. So uh, I, 
I feel like artists like Massive Attack and Bjork and Stereolab and Portishead really opened the door for this type of music. Yeah. But my question was, what changed in popular sound that that allowed this to to start like infect the alternative radio stations? Because it seemed more geared towards like pop, dance, things like that. Right. And yet it really got adopted by by the alternative fans. Well, I'll tell you this, and I don't want it to sound um, like I'm, you know, blowing my own horn here. But when so my good girlfriend of mine worked for K-Rock in L.A., I worked for the end. The end had become one of the biggest alternative stations in the country. Absolutely. Because we broke garbage. We broke all these bands before they had record deals. We did garbage last month. Uh, did you really? Yep. yep. That's almost one that I would have done with you, but you you got <laughs> you got the good one for me. Thank you. So I just remember sitting down with her going, What is next? I was so fucking bored. And I thought if this is alternative radio, what is this can't be the alternative. What's the alternative to all this shit that we've been playing? Not that I didn't love grunge, not that I didn't love Nirvana and and that Seattle sound. We became a part of that sound. But I felt like you've got to they have you in this gig because you can sort of postulate as to what might be next. And I just, I'll tell you when it connected for me. I went to London. We went to a um, a party, and we were in the middle of the dance floor, and just like the artist that was playing, it was electronic. I can't even remember. It was a Planet Dog party, and the artist, I don't remember who it was, but they, they hit a drop, you know, mm -hmm. and it was one of those moments where my heart jumped, and we were dancing, and I was like, okay this feels like when i'm in the pit at a show this feels the same way the adrenaline the excitement and i'm like this shit can translate we can translate in the states i mean british radio bbc will play you know uh green day back to back with orbital and yep. have no problem <laughs> playing electronic artists why doesn't the u.s embrace this stuff so she and i bought a bunch of records and came home and decided, let's see how this works. So I started feeding this stuff into my radio show and tried to convince my boss. He gave me a lot of rope at that time. The company gave us a lot of rope. Um, and if I could make it pop on the requests, then my boss would give me more rope. And I just started doing it, man. And yeah, a lot of people didn't react positively to it. Um, in fact, the newspaper, the uh, PI, wrote one of the uh, one of their editors wrote a whole, you know, op-ed about how dare I try to cram this electronic shit down kids' throats and blah 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 blah. <laughs> it was the best thing That's ever great. because I read that on the air and uh, <laughs> I just really I felt that it would translate. So the time that it all changed was. We took a risk and booked the Prodigy to headline Enfest. Okay. So it was no doubt. It was Beck. It was freaking, I can't remember who else, but the Prodigy were closing out the show. I 
it, it wasn't that they were headlining. They were just closing out the <laughs> show. It was for when it got dark and it would, and we flew them in from England and it was a big risk for us because they didn't know. I had to walk into meetings holding enemy going 80,000 people they're playing in right. front of. These guys can pull this off. So a ton of industry folks came to Seattle, editors of newspapers, um, uh, freaking radio stations sent their programming teams to Enfest. And <laughs> when right before Daft Punk, or I'm sorry, uh, right before the Prodigy. Uh, the Prodigy went on, I went around to all of these motherfuckers and gave them all ecstasy. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I gave them all ease. Um, and, um, and so, you know, I gave them like 45 minutes so that it'd be hitting when the band went sure. on. And then, bam, they hit the stage and I haven't seen anything like that. I got chills because nobody knew if it could translate on that level. Like, and here's the great thing about it. When No Doubt got done with their performance, I could see a mass exodus of EdFest. 15,000, you know, maybe five to 10,000 people all leaving because they didn't know who this freaking prodigy right. band was we had only played one song firestarter at that yep. at that point so i remember going give me a live mic walking out running out on stage saying stop everybody stop where you <laughs> stop do not leave the venue because there's going to be a lot to talk about on monday morning and you're going to miss out this is an unbelievable opportunity for you and if you leave right now you're you're Gonna be bummed. So I could see like maybe half of the people s slow down and stop and come back. And then when they fucking hit the stage, it erupted. Um, I still ha I have the show on DAT, DAT yes. tape. Um, it's unbelievable, man. They came right out with Smack My Bitch Up. Of course. Which started with Smack My Bitch Up. And you could see the crowd. Everybody's like, Hmm. Are we allowed to like this? Yeah. <laughs> Everybody's like all these kids. And then the pit starts going. And then fucking it turned into utter fucking amazing chaos. I'm getting chills talking about it right now because I could look around at these editors, one in particular, and I'm like, huh. Huh, how about that? And it was just one of those moments of triumph. Like, this shit can translate. These kids that were just moshing to whoever uh, are fucking crowd surfing and going nuts. And the prodigy only played into it. At one point, Beck, he, he gets on the shoulders of a security guard <laughs> and starts, like, just dancing through. I mean, it just became one of those moments that... I think the industry looked at it because it, it it was brewing that you know the idea that electronica, which I've always hated that term, right, could break in the states. But that was when the industry was like, "Huh, let's give this a shot." If we can, like, and to me, it was the next big thing. I thought it was going to be as big as grunge, and I was super stoked about it. And it didn't exactly <laughs> end up, you know happening that yeah. way but the impact of what we were doing we started an electronic music show on the station we had djs on every night we started you know we did that show live and we'd have djs uh in our stupid little radio studios 
And we would turn out all the lights. People were faded. It was on a Saturday night for two hours, live DJs. And it was, you know, we were, I was trying to put the party in the airwaves that would translate to the, to the community. And I think that it really did in a big way. And so slowly people started coming around, but it took them a long time. And I think the rest of the country was feeling it too. And then all it took was an alternative entity to kind of go, and then, you know, a couple of those editors wrote about the experience and it all really exploded. This is this is so interesting because you you like anticipated and answered my question, which is that I think around this same time, like I also was feeling like okay, like uh, grunge grunge is starting to run its course, and I went starting in a, right, right, yes, of course, <laughs> like, I, and I'm like, no, I don't want to become a Bush fan, so right. so like I went, so I went in a different direction and like went like you know became even more of like an indie basement kid and and, uh, and a lot and, of people did that right super like you know, chunk, so I started listening like, yes of course super chunk like john girl. john vanderslice yes. like the loud family and, um and that stuff was exciting too and that sort of was the phase for me out of grunge was all of these cool indie american groups that were doing their thing can't we make that work because i was always looking to make things work on a larger level um how can i communicate this this music on a bigger level so that didn't seem to have the legs no it absolutely didn't that became like you know the always the story of like indian power pop like you know the beautiful beautiful songs that uh, that don't get heard and right. that's and that's fine and i loved it but like clearly like you know the the daft punk uh you know uh chemical brothers orbital prodigy like these were these were like epic you know this could be the soundtrack of your life and like you know could you could be like you know this is this is the music that sounds like me when i'm like you know in my in my best moments yeah um and you know it was just a different different sound that was serving that purpose for me in my well, like little and, sad and basement moments eventually this did get picked up by mtv like where mtv yep. started playing all of these artists very very regularly like yeah. that, that was a large part of my teen years in in the 90s was everything that I would learn about would be from alternative radio or from MTV. And these artists were finding really great directors to, to make their videos and like bring the music to life. And so it, it caught on in a way that like was totally unexpected where at the same time, there were bands like Oasis that were getting plenty of airplay, but like, Michelle Gondry directed the video for Around the World, yeah, and, it, and it's absolutely and Apex Twin, and Apex yeah. Twin, yeah, yep. and and it's it's absolutely incredible. And like, I I mentioned in the notes here that Daft Punk was one of these bands where like Around the World, I knew this song for years and didn't know what band it was. Because, oh, because like, I I wasn't always watching till the beginning or end of videos. I wasn't always like like it was just a dance track with the same thing being repeated 144 yeah. times yep. but it worked so well. Yeah, so I same same with me and like of course, you know, prepping for this for this episode, I listened to the song a bunch of times this week and you know, at first I'm like, okay, yeah, no, I get that this is good but is but it's not really my genre and then by like, you know, the 6th or 7th time I'm like, oh, this is gets stuck in my head like yeah, all the time man, now. It's hooky and it's so as as the bass is great as it is, there's still an element of emotion to what these kids yes, did. Yes, absolutely. And that's where I thought they really connected. I feel like the Chemical Brothers connected on that level. Fat Boy, uh, after a while, I remember getting Fat Boy's first record and us going, 
what the fuck is this? <laughs> this is so dope, dude. This is the next big thing. Um, and I had a kid that worked with me who went on to do real good things, worked at MTV, and now he works at Sonos. He worked for DFA, you know, James and uh, um, uh, Tim. Um, but yeah, this it, the two of us sort of just were like spearheading as much of this as we could. And um, Daft Punk was my baby. It, it connected with me like those others couldn't in a big way. So did you ever meet the, the androids? Oh, of course. Yes. Of course I did. I interviewed them. Masked or unmasked? Uh, unmasked. This okay. was way before they were masked, which I always thought it was funny that people were like, what do they look like? I'm like like this <laughs> right. um, like they have faces for radio yeah i mean so um yeah i had seen them many times uh, i'll tell you i have some really good daft punk stories so um i interviewed them at the end when they uh played the show box um i still have the original autographed poster for that show nice. framed in my apartment um i'm a bit obsessive so I went to Paris for them also. I kind of stalked them in Paris. Um, not really, but, <laughs> but, but I went to the club that I knew was going to... Well, that's another story. Um, yeah, so I one of my favorite moments with Daft Punk was ha attending a Daft Punk DJ set that I didn't even know was going to happen. I ended up going to the VMAs with Samantha from the band Hole. Okay, um, sure. And, uh, and we had really good seats. And we went to a party afterwards. It was a big virgin party, and the guys were there. And um, uh, prior to that party, though, we heard that Daft Punk was going to be DJing in this hotel. And we were going from room to ballroom to ballroom. Where's the ballroom? Hold on. There's got to be another ballroom. There's no setup in here. We were on a tear to find Daft Punk, right? So we end up walking into this room. There's maybe 15 kids in this room. There's a cheesy little table set up, two turntables. And who's behind one? Toma Bangleturk and Norman Cook. From Fatboy yep. Slim, oh, yeah. <laughs> and they took turns. They went back and forth. And are they doing original music, or are they like spinning like no, old forty five? No, they're they're playing everything. No, <laughs> it's not original. They're not actually doing a set. They're just DJing. But there were only fifteen kids in this room, so I went up and I just was like, "Hey." <laughs> so I've got pictures of them DJing. I got a picture of me and Tama together, um, and Sam and I danced. For two hours straight. We Amazing. danced nonstop right there next to the turntables, fist in the air every time they'd hit. So, like, I was this close to them. There was no security. It was such a last minute thing that it looked like they called a party company to come <laughs> set up. It was so rinky dink. And it was one of the most amazing experiences. Um, and then we ended up hanging out with them at a party afterwards, which was awesome. Um, yeah, I'm a fan. Um, <laughs> you know, I became somewhat obsessive at one point. So I'm in, I've probably seen this group um, perform live, you know, in addition to DJ sets. Um, 
more than a lot of people. <laughs> okay, so two two things. First of all, to give you an idea of what kind of music I like, when you say Norman Cook, to this day, the thing that immediately jumps into my mind is, oh yeah, the guy from the House Martins yes! had a new band. Um, <laughs> and Beats International. Yes. He was in Beats International, too. Um, I love that you know that. So I, I talk pretty regularly on this show about being a musician, um, because I'm self-centered. Who knows why? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, you like what you do. I, I do like what I do. And I think one of the most amazing things about Daft Punk and this genre coming out was it was one of the first moments that in my teenage years, I really went, I have no idea how they're creating this. Like I was, I was brought up in the grunge era where it was like guitar, bass, drums. Analog. Ma- yeah. yeah ma- maybe there were keys in there. And, and, all of a sudden these bands are coming out and they're creating original music with synthesizers with with drum machines Samplers. and it's not like it's not like it had never been done before but they were doing it in a way where it was like this is all completely original and it was it was absolutely fascinating to me if you listen closely to the song around the world it's only got really five instruments on it but they're doing so much with them right. and it and it's such a departure from what everybody else was doing at that time yeah really really compressed drum sounds uh matthew you said you'd know that this music is not for listening in your living room (laughs) it's like they were creating tracks for for parties parties yeah but but it became so much bigger than that well and i will say they also especially daft punk embraced 70s disco right yes you know house music kind of already had but these guys we're like, no, we need that, you know, we need that that sounding guitar. I'm not sure why I made that sound. <laughs> no, I know what you mean. We like, need that chic sound. We need that, you know, uh, just early, early um, 70s sound. Well, and, and look what they did on Random Access Memories. Yeah. Like, oh, yeah. They actually brought in Niall Rogers. They brought like, in yeah. Niall. And you know what? To me, that's the least favorite album that they have the one that won the grammy i'm like yeah yeah of course they're getting the grammy for all the work they did in the beginning but this is not the most original thing that they've done by any means um it's fun to be able to play those songs in clubs you know because the other stuff here's what i will say it's aged not real well when i go back and listen to homework some of those songs have aged not very well we talk about that on this show a lot, and it's like there's the nostalgia factor, though. Yeah. I mean, even if it hasn't aged well, like there's plenty of music from the 90s that you can't put on for, sure. for a 12-year-old and go, you're going to love this. Right, right. It's going to be amazing. But you can listen to it and go, God, this brings me, this brings this memory back, this memory back, right. like like the first time you heard an album and the first time that you played it for somebody oh, else. of course, man. Like, like, that's one of the best parts about this. Yeah. Homework is an interesting album because they conceived it as an LP. Like, they conceived it on vinyl. Uh, they wrote all the songs separately. Like, yeah. it it shouldn't really work back-to-back like, it, like a long dance track, but it really, really does. Oh, it totally does. Yep. And it's a journey you go on, and... You know, one of my favorite songs on that record is Fresh. And the reason I love Fresh so much is that one takes you out of your whole, like, world. And I think when that connected for me, it was also uh, uh, 
It was a night snowboarding, and uh, a bunch of folks were all a part of this snowboard team, and we did a big concert up on the mountain, and we had uh, artists stay in this. We got a huge condo, so everybody was crashing in the condo, and it snowed so hard, we were snowed in. And everybody dropped to ecstasy again, <laughs> and we put on that fucking Daft Punk record, and everybody danced. And it was funny because I'm looking around at like all these snowboarder kids that are normally like rock punk, and these kids are losing their minds to this. And I just remember when Fresh came on, it was a whole different experience. <laughs> nice. The whole room just like... It was just a beautiful, beautiful moment. And yeah, you know, drugs definitely uh, enhanced that electronic thing because it sort of, you know, to me, a record like Homework is still very emotional as clinical as it is. So add some ecstasy to that mix and it <laughs> right. all becomes a warm puddle of wonderful. Um, but yeah, so... You know, those experiences for me and just connecting with that record were super important. And it was just n unlike anything I'd ever heard. Disjointed. Um, not complete songs, really. Right. Hooks repeated again and again. But, you know, filter that stuff. You know, you can put all of that through filters and make it feel like it's a journey. You know what I mean? And these guys were really, really good at that. And... um yeah, I just thought the record was so groundbreaking. It's it's I mean it's storytelling but using completely different ingredients than the way like a grunge or indie song would Oh do yeah. It. I mean teachers yet you know what's funny is like teachers you can hear all the hip hop DJs that they're you know right that they're uh name checking there. Um and that kind of gives you just a little bit of grounding on the record like oh okay if you don't get it now you do. Here's here's a roadmap of what this record is, you know, created from. And I I thought that that was kind of an important track too because I know for me, I looked up every one of those motherfuckers that I didn't know. <laughs> yes. I did. Yeah. I looked them all up. Yeah. Well, well, I was going to bring up Paul's boutique, but it would would have taken a year to look up everything that's on that oh album. Oh my god. Uh, so, uh question for you what originally got you into music? What did you listen to as a kid? I know that's two questions. Yeah. So as a kid, I was really into radio. So I've always been into radio. My cousins remind me that, you know, I'm like, oh, I never really knew what I wanted to do. And they're like, what are you talking about? You'd make us, you would DJ and make us write down requests and hand them to you as you DJed behind the turntable. Did you listen to to Casey Kasem or Rick D's oh, Top 40? Of course I did. Yeah. I Amazing. love those shows. I mean, not only that, I taped those shows. Oh, I so did, did too. We. Yeah, <laughs> man. Absolutely, yes. I taped them all so that I could <laughs> listen to them all week. And so that was the... My dad was really into music. So my dad turned me on to James Brown and funk mm -hmm. and soul music. He was really into soul. So I got turned on to a lot of artists that I might not have uh, very early. And I, I didn't always see eye to eye with my dad. He took me to see James Brown once, and I remember going, 
I don't fucking get it. How does the guy leave the stage for 30 minutes <laughs> and the fucking band is just doing all the work for him and it's billed like, shouldn't you call it James Brown and company? Like, I just was like, I don't get it until much later. Yeah, right. did, you did, know. did you ever see Sharon Jones and the Dap Kings? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I remember the first time I saw them. Like, the band comes out. Charles and Bradley, same thing. Yeah, they're, they're playing, like, good five or ten minutes, yeah. and, and you're like, so is this the show? Right. And then she hits the stage, and you're like, holy Ooh, shit, yeah. this woman is on fire. But there then, was a thing. Yeah, then she would leave for a bit, and you'd be like, right. okay, well, we'll get back into the, yeah. the band thing for a little bit. I mean, that was a funk thing, you know? Um so my dad, I really have to credit my dad. But then, you know, when disco happened, I was all about it, man. But, you know, I was a kid that grew up in the middle of the mountains. I was hungry mm -hmm. for anything. So I listened to the radio nonstop. When disco hit, we bought those fucking records and we danced to them. My family had, I lived across the street from five girls and they were my <laughs> babysitters. Yeah, Jackie, Jill, Joni. <laughs> Uh, Jenny and I can't Jackie. Well, um, <laughs> why, why do parents do this? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, and those girls were really into disco. So I was still a young, a young kid. But they would come over on a Saturday. My mom would put on Donna Summer's live album or Donna, you know, whatever it was. You know, obviously, Saturday Night Fever was a huge record for our household. But we started buying these records. And so I got really into disco and was super bummed when it got destroyed. You yeah. know, when it was Disco Sucks. and Yeah, um, that was real dumb. <laughs> it was really dumb, man. Talk about racist. Yes, That was incredibly. a real racist move from... A bunch of uh and you know, homophobic also homophobic yep a hundred percent um i've gone back and really studied that whole thing and read about it's really it. upsetting it's really upsetting man it's uh it's hard to look at because i feel like there's a movement that's embracing that shit all over again oh sure do you know this kid young bay uh i know the name but i don't know oh anything he's about out him. of portland he's Phenomenal. He got signed to Arista for a minute, and I thought he was going to be the next whatever. And then he got dropped from Arista. But I think that had more to do with he felt like they didn't understand what he was trying to do. But um, I've kind of become friends with this kid. And, you know, a buddy of mine owns a disco in town called Supernova. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And it's where uh, Studio 7 used to be. Studio 7 used to be. Yeah. God, I used to see metal shows there. Yeah, exactly. It's fucking like <laughs> it's it's really doing strange. Blow in the bathroom. <laughs> um, I did see MXPX play there though. And that was <laughs> that's excellent. Cool. That was awesome. So he transformed that place into a disco, and this is a kid that's thirty two, thirty something, so and, mo moderately young. Babe. Yeah, and he was obsessed with disco. He watches all the movies. He's got Studio Fifty Four books. He studied all this stuff and loves it. And it's this generation of kids that I don't think would embrace this stuff had it not been for Daft Punk, because yeah. you know Daft Punk kind of made it okay to like those sounds again, that funky. You know, that now Rogers, that old soulful kind of vibe. Um, and Daft Punk just chewed it up and spit it out a yep. different way and made it made it so that it was more abstract in in a lot of ways. 
but it connected with kids. Kids that maybe grew up on samples and hip-hop records. So, um, yeah, man. So it's it's been funny. You know, uh, I was at KXP for a while, six years. And near the end, I was like, I see this coming a mile away. (laughs) I can see it coming. And it's amazing. When I would go on and do like a dance party on the radio, I just called it a dance party. I didn't (laughs) give a shit. And it happened because COVID uh, happened. Michelle Myers did this show on Friday nights that was kind of her dance party. And then I was like, when COVID happened, my boss, I was one of the DJs that actually went into work, Mm -hmm. you know? I used to listen to your show pretty regularly on KEXP. Okay. And uh, like I said, I would just miss you when you were on the end. Okay. So so I had never really heard you DJ prior to that. And, you know, unfortunately what we do in the past sets up these expectations. I'm like, oh, so Marco's show is going to be like throwback alternative. And it's so far the opposite of that, that I'm like, is is he punking everybody? What's going on here? And it, it's when I realized like how incredibly eclectic and all over the place your, your musical tastes are, but in an absolutely great way. Like, like I, he- I heard you play Britney Spears on KEXP, which... <laughs> I didn't think was allowed. It, it, it was it was incredible. Yeah. So it they never tell us at KXP. You're never told you can't play something. Never. Yeah. You might get some weird looks when you cross the line, and I definitely got those looks, and I definitely got the, uh, you know, the sort of eyebrow beatings. But but honestly. I would do it to push buttons. I would do it because it was contrary to what was going on. And I also believed that, like, people want to have fucking fun. Yeah. Like, people want to have fun. If you're in a dance club, and here's what I've also understood because I started DJing out. I DJed a club the other night, and it was filled with hipsters. And it was a special party. And I'm like, oh, I prepared because I knew it was going to be heads in there, right? So I'm like preparing nothing. I couldn't get them to move with any of my hipster bullshit. So you know what I played? I played fucking, um, uh, oh, first I played Miley Cyrus Party in the USA. Yep. The place erupted. And I'm like, all right, so this is how it works. Is there anybody who doesn't like that song? I don't. I don't even want to meet the person who who wouldn't move to that song. I mean, when the chorus hits, man, it. And that's the thing that I've always been a firm believer in. If the shit moves you, who gives a fuck? Yeah. What format it is, like yeah. you know, which is why I tried to push boundaries at the end too. But at KXP, I always felt like, all right. You're never gonna outcool the cool kids in this building. You're in, you're a fifty some odd year old right. man. These kids are always gonna know more of the cool bands than you are. But you know what you got on them? <laughs> you're not afraid to just be dumb. You're not afraid <laughs> to dumb it down and play some fun shit and have fun. Like I'm not gonna win the cool game, but. I'll bet you I can put on a show that's going to make people happy. And that's what I tried to do. Like, let's have fun. You know, 
fucking Britney Spears Toxic is a huge fucking song. We, I also learned a one, lot. One of the best songs out. ever. Yeah, yeah we, we've dude. had this conversation on the show before. That's one of the best written songs it's of just, all time. It's fantastic. And, you know, I'm a Bieber fan, too. I I never crossed that line. <laughs> that, was, that was a bridge too far for me over there. Britney was cool. Yeah. Um, I'll tell you when I did cross a bridge there that I was like, oh, that was a mistake. I was doing afternoon drive and I thought, okay, what's the what's the fucking top forty song you're gonna freak everybody out by? But they're gonna love it. Not do a Lipa because that works no matter what. Oh, sure. That's disco. I played fucking Smash Mouth <laughs> All Star. Oh, because God. let me tell you why. Let me tell you why. Because I've been in situations where it comes on and people that are drunk are like singing at the top of their yeah, lungs of course. in a club. So I thought, <laughs> well, it can work on the radio. And the moment it went into the first chorus, I'm like, nope, didn't, didn't work. I didn't even have to see my audience. Nope, didn't work on the radio. Nope. I didn't even have to look at text. <laughs> I, I can tolerate work. a lot. I, I'm going to be honest. Yeah. I would have changed the station immediately. Sorry, Marco, not listening to you anymore. <laughs> yep. You know, you, you've got to crash you got to crash the vehicle several times yep. before you find out how to how to drive it. And sometimes you got to take risks. And I always felt like, is it really a risk to play something top 40 in it that depends. audience? Yeah. <laughs> With that audience, it is. Because you're, you're saying, fuck, you're cool. Let's dance. Fuck art. Let's dance right now. Like, yep. let's do this. And um, – that's why I had a blast doing those parties. And, you know, I started doing them over COVID. And every time I'd fill in for Kevin Cole in the afternoons, mm -hmm. I was like, all right, <laughs> we're we doing go. a dance party. Let's see how we're going to mix gonna, this shit yeah, up. Yeah, <laughs> let's, let's throw some funk soul. And it was a blast. I, those, I've got so much respect for those people over there. I, I miss working there with them. It's it's a pretty rare thing in this country. I mean, for, yeah. for a station like that to be the fifth most popular station in the entire United States. Yeah, they, they've created something absolutely special. over Yeah, there. they and certainly have. It, it's it's amazing because they kind of do whatever they want and people will listen. Right. It's a very rare thing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All right. So speaking of what you're listening to, uh, should we should we transition over to uh, a couple of picks for best of 23? Sure. We're, right. we're doing this a little bit late, but we've decided instead of what has come out in the last month, we're going to talk about our favorites of 2023. Matthew, why don't you go first? Uh, OK, so, yeah, let's let's do this quick, like lightning round, because uh, we're, we're running long and uh, we want to eat. Oh, pizza. I've talked too long. No, no, no. no. OK, it's this is we could we could do this for three more hours. OK, and it would be, we, and it would we be probably will. After the mic's <laughs> right. Okay, okay, so uh, three top three of 2023 for me, which is going to surprise nobody because I'm always mentioning all of these uh, on the show. Uh, Kate Davis, Fishbowl. Uh, Kate Davis is from Portland. Her She's an incredible songwriter, great singer, and her songs are just like – you know, she has my favorite thing. She she pulls out the like highest tension chord and makes you sit in it, and then like you know, lets gives you the release and the best song consequences. Uh, it starts with her leaving her wallet and keys in an Uber. It follows some beautiful melodies into some really dark places, which is like you know, I'm an Elliott Smith fan. That's kind of the best thing a song can do. Uh, the clientele, I'm not there anymore. It's a classic. Uh, they've been making rest records since 2000, and I think their three most recent albums are their best, which is pretty cool. And the photocopies, Top of the Pops, which uh, I bet 
I bet, Mark, I bet you haven't heard this one, no. have you? Okay. I haven't even heard of the first artist you okay. mentioned. I don't K- even I, know you would, I think is. you would love Kate okay. Davis. Top top of the pops, photocopies, maybe. So this is a, uh, they're from England. They are uh, a, you know, indie pop band. And this album is 13 songs in 11 minutes. And they're like, can we fit like complete pop songs into these 45 to 60 second songs? Holy shit. It is so good. It really it's works. It's so well done. Wow. And because the whole album's 11 minutes long, I think I've listened to it like 300 times. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, you know, wow. I don't know if I'm going to be listening to it two or three years from now, but it's brilliant. God, I love that. Okay. Uh, my two picks for the year. Number one is Jungle Volcano. Uh, nice. I was such a fan of their previous album, Loving in Stereo, and I didn't think they could match it. And they did. Um, it's a production duo, not unlike Daft Punk, and they both play multiple instruments, but they tour around with a six-piece band, and I got to see them live this year, and it's absolutely phenomenal. And the album is like one long dance party and works so well. And I I found by the end of the year that I was listening to it more than almost anything else other than King Gizzard and the Lizard Wizard, <laughs> Petro Apocalypse, which couldn't be more of a different album if you were trying. Um, it's probably my favorite King Gizzard album to date and it's very very hard rock so King that Gizzard is amazing that band is all over yeah, the map King Gizzard is always going to do something that somebody likes and somebody else hates and I love this and I guarantee that I could play it for 10 people I know and they go I can't even listen to 5 minutes of this but this wait Hate Dancing garbage. was on the record before the heavy album uh, Hate Dancing was on yeah Changes right. okay. Changes yep. correct God, what a weird <laughs> what band. What a weird band. Yeah, it's did amazing. Did you go see them out here when uh, they did the... I, I did. I went to two of the shows. Oh, Jesus. It poured, and it was Was there three wild. shows? There were three shows oh all God. sold out. 5,000 people a night, right? Yeah, it was, it was totally crazy. That's awesome. Marco, what you got? Well, my number one favorite record of last year is this band called Cub Sport. And the reason mm-hmm. I like them, they're an Australian uh, queer band, um, and... I like the fact that um, it, it, it's housey, it's yeah. dancey, but they started as this indie band and they just sort of ushered in this whole uh, dancey disco sound. Um, so, of course, I, I fell in love with it. Also, it's just got some really, I like the idea of like dreamy vocals floating around with a house beat. Yes. It seems so like... I don't know. To me, it's it's um, it just turns again house music into more of an emotional journey. And so, that, it's a great album title. Yeah, right? Jesus at the Gay Bar. That's gonna push buttons yep. everywhere. <laughs> um, yeah, I love those kids. Um, I have a feeling they're gonna be very big. Another record that I totally dug uh, was Anani and the Johnsons. Yes. Mm-hmm. How many do I get to talk about? Two. You can do three, do four, three. whatever you want. Yeah. All right. So um, it's funny. Not everybody loves her voice, but I saw her live when she was Antony uh, in a women's shelter, mm-hmm. uh, just her and a piano. And that's all it was. And we all sat in little plastic chairs, kind of like this one and <laughs> in, in this room. And it was, it was mesmerizing yeah this fucking voice and then i saw her play with the portland symphony 
also. Uh, I've been a fan for a long time, and this new record, she's transitioned into a nani, uh, and it's just, to me, she went back to making a rock record. The last record was this electronic, sort of all-over-the-map uh, record, and she went back to being in a rock band and making what I thought was one of the best records of the year. That record is called My Back Was a Bridge for You to Cross. Yeah. There's some also some button pushers on this record. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and then I love the Little Yachty record, you guys. I loved that freaking It's weirdo. really good. It's, it's really good. It's really good record. And not everybody connected with it, but I thought it was phenomenal. It's just for him to color out he's always been different right mm -hmm. but he colored way outside the lines on this one and did it effectively like he sang and did it uh, you know yeah it, it, sure he's obsessed with pink floyd he found <laughs> and, he, and a little bit of tame apollo <laughs> yeah yeah he found those people later um uh, but god damn the way that record opens and plays through is just i think um i think it's fucking cool for a hip-hop artist to step in that direction because i think that a lot of kids were like fuck that yeah. fuck that but also i talked to kids who were like fuck i fuck with that you know <laughs> what i mean because yep. it's so different because kids don't see the same lines that we do absolutely they don't true. see the same yep. barriers they're like we like hip-hop we like house we like rock we like old grunge we like it all man so i think uh I think for that reason, that record's popular with a lot of people. Yep. It pushes buttons again. I kind of like records that do that. Nice. <laughs> All right. So uh, happy happy New Year. Do we do that last time? I think we did that last time. I think we did time. that last time. All right. Well, it's still it's still the New Year. Uh, you can find us at uh, hiddenjukebox.com, at uh, facebook.com slash hiddenjukebox, uh, on Instagram at jukeboxhidden. Uh, you can rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, and uh, Marco, is there anything you'd like to plug? Um, no, I do a radio show afternoons on a Seattle radio station called 98.9 KPNW. Okay. It's um a bit more mainstream than what I did at KEXP, but that's where I am now. My social media is at DJ Marco Collins, both on Instagram and uh, Twitter is at not Marco Collins. <laughs> I don't know. Just look up the name. You'll find it. Yep. <laughs> well, um, thanks for being on. We really appreciate yeah, it. Thank you guys. This was awesome, man. Until next time, I'm Jake Amster. And I'm Matthew Amster Burton.